like most Americans this week. My sleep has been interrupted by a deep sorrow of the soul, aching, grieving, praying, watching, as mass protests have erupted across the United States after the senseless death of a black man, George Floyd, who was killed while in police custody on Memorial Day. Crescendo of voices rising and crying out for justice and an end to systemic racism in our country. After years and years and years of violence against black Americans. As one columnist wrote, we will get through this horrific time in our world and nation but not by minimizing the validity of its awfulness. It is a crucial time for those of us who enjoy privilege because of our race or who seek justification by it to engage in self-examination and to devote ourselves to pray, to call out to God for help, to listen, to learn, and to serve to confess, to repent, and to change, to show up, to stand up with marginalized and oppressed brothers and sisters here in our country, and it is a crucial time to grow. We continue our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, a letter that was written to Christians in a particular region. Against the backdrop of our world today, we arrive to the second chapter of Ephesians, the text that you heard earlier this morning, read by Henry, a scripture that provides for us fundamental foundations and a theological underpinning for what it means to follow Christ and how we are to live our lives. The text begins in a very abrupt way. You were dead. Death is the first word. Dead in your sins, cut off from God, cut off from the one who was the giver of all life. But then we see these two beautiful words in verse four. But God. But God who is rich in mercy out of the great love for which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. This vivid contrast from death to life. God stepped in, knowing that we were powerless to save ourselves. He stepped in and made a way for us to be reconciled because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is amazing grace. We are united in our need for it. This whole notion of grace, it is free, it is undeserved. There is an element of extravagance to it. There's also an element of surprise. If you are not surprised by it, then it probably isn't grace. Martin Luther King Jr. would say, it is a gift we don't merit, that we don't deserve, but which we so desperately need. Something you benefited from that someone else didn't have to do. Friends, maybe it is challenging to define grace, but we recognize it when we experience it. 
I know I have many, have had many moments in my life where I have experienced grace. It's that, it's that whole time when something happens in your life and you're like, oh, that was grace. Someone gives to you something that was completely undeserved. It has been good for me to reflect upon that this week. I would encourage you to do the same, to get in touch of what it feels like to experience grace, to reflect upon when grace has arrived in your life. But here is where we can get lazy with grace. This grace is free, but it is not cheap. It comes at an enormous cost to God, the suffering and death of God's own son. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has something to teach us here. In 1937, on the threshold of Nazi Germany's war on the world, Lutheran pastor and German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote one of the most influential books in the 20th century, The Cost of Discipleship. Centered on the Sermon of the Mount, this book is about what it means to follow Jesus and the cost of discipleship. As a postdoctoral student in America at Union Theological Seminary for one year, Bonhoeffer worshiped and taught Sunday school at a Baptist church in Harlem, New York. It is widely believed that that experience of worshiping and teaching Sunday school and having an experience of the black church and American racism, that that greatly influenced Bonhoeffer's work, specifically being staunchly opposed when he returned to Germany of the Nazis' desire to eliminate Jews in Europe. In 1943, because of his faith and his political activism, Bonhoeffer was arrested and put in jail. In 1945, just 23 days before the Nazis surrendered and the end of the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer died as Hitler's orders for him to be hung were carried out. Bonhoeffer lived a life of compelling faith in one of the darkest moments of history. He opens his remarkable cost of discipleship, contrasting cheap grace with costly grace. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow upon ourselves. Bonhoeffer explains, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell at his, all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a person must knock. 
Above all, it is a grace which God did not reckon his son to dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Grace is not cheap, but it is a priceless gift. And it carries with it an enormous responsibility. For new life can spring forth from a powerful, if costly, act of grace. We catch a vision for what this kind of grace looks like in the story of Les Miserables. Set in 19th century France, Les Miserables, the stage musical adaptation of Victor Hugo's novel, is one of the most beloved musicals of the world. The backdrop of Les Mis is the French Revolution in the years after one of the most violent periods of France's life with unjust laws and terrible living situations. Jean Valjean is a thief that has served 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Early in the film, Valjean has a run-in with an inspector who sees Valjean as someone who deserves death and whose life has no meaning or purpose and is unable to change. Ultimately, Valjean is finally released from prison, but he carries those papers with him, which means he cannot find a place to sleep and he cannot find a place to work until the ultimate moment of surprise at the end of the story when Jean Valjean is provided for by a bishop. He runs across a bishop who welcomes him in and gives him a meal and a place to sleep in a bed for the night. And in the middle of the night, in a moment of panic, Jean Valjean, he awakens and he steals all of the silver that the bishop has and he runs, but he is caught. And they bring him back to the bishop fully expecting that the bishop is going to say that, yes, he stole everything that I have in the way of silver and that he deserves to go back to prison. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes, of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother. You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, 
I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. That's the look of surprising, disarming, extravagant, transforming grace. A disarming grace that changes us and changes the world and is a pivotal moment in Valjean's life as he will not be the same. He will no longer look at himself in the same way and he will spend the rest of his life in service to others. Friends, you have been saved by grace. Hallelujah. By faith in Jesus Christ. But there is a second half of the equation. Ephesians 2.10. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be your way of life. Friends, there is a responsibility of grace. Following Jesus demands something of us. We who are recipients of so much mercy and extravagant grace, we are called to live our lives a particular way. Not to earn God's favor, it's not to save us in any form or fashion, but rather it is a response of grace. It is what we have been saved for. Our works don't save us, but grace motivates them. Outside of grace, we will do them wrong. Brothers and sisters, against the backdrop of the chaos and the injustices and all the pain that is oozing in our world at this time, seeing and doing nothing is another example of cheap grace. We learned in the first chapter of Ephesians that we are a part of God's family. We are welcomed into the family of God. And being a part of the family of God means that we carry with us certain characteristics. Families have certain priorities. And the priorities of God's families is that we have a concern for justice that we believe that all humans are created in the image of God, of infinite value and worth, and that love is our banner. We are a community intended to make things better. Take your place in God's story. Do good works in response to grace. That is your way of life, to make the world better, all because of God's grace. Friends, how will you respond to the immeasurable gift of grace in your life? May God be near to us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.